0: You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, everyone. Pardon the interruption, but just a quick message from me to let you know about the leadership survey we have just placed on the website. Here at The Great Coaches, we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership, but we have gone back to the transcripts of the more than 200 great coaches we've interviewed to identify their key leadership traits. We've then created a survey of 20 questions to help you compare your leadership style to theirs. It's free, only takes a few minutes to complete, and should help you find areas of relative strength and weakness. If you'd like to know more, check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.
1: Introducing Wondersuite from bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast.
2: To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there.
0: This is a chance, a lifetime. When you can align. understand the person, you can then
1: work towards a common goal.
2: We are all on the same team. Know your role you and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again.
1: Your defense has got to be better. Leave no We've doubt tonight.
2: Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Jim Wolfrey. And you are listening to the Great Coaches Podcast. Usually, Paul and I interview great sporting coaches to try and find ideas to help us all lead our teams better. From time to time, we'll be looking at great sporting coaches from different vantage points that we call our In Focus series. Today, it's the boardroom, and our first In Focus guest is Cameron Schwab, who has had a ringside seat beside some of the greatest coaches Australian rules football has ever seen. Cameron grew up as the son of a football CEO and spent his childhood mixing with some of his heroes. He then started his own career in football at age 20, overseeing talent identification and player recruitment at the Melbourne Football Club. He was soon appointed CEO of the Richmond Football Club at just 24, the youngest in the history of the league. For the next 25 years, he was CEO of three AFL clubs, Richmond, Melbourne and Fremantle ranking him the eighth on the list of the longest serving CEOs in the 150 years of the sport. In addition to his career in the AFL, he holds an MBA, is a talented artist, has battled cancer and depression, and talks openly about the parenting challenges of supporting a transgender child. These days, he runs Design CEO, where he helps organizations build courageous, confident, and creative leaders. This was an engaging and challenging discussion, and the highlights for me were Cameron's thoughts on the influence of military training on the coaching styles of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, behaviors being more important than values and the concept of performance trust. Cameron is a great storyteller. He really takes you into the boardroom when he was engaging with some of the biggest names the sport of Australian rules football has ever known, we hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. The Great Coaches Podcast.
0: So, Cameron, how are
3: you going? No, I'm good. Yeah, good. Now, it's Saturday night in Melbourne uh, in the middle of a lockdown. So, uh, I feel like I spend, um, if it's possible, like 28 hours, 28 hours a day in this particular spot here. So, it's not, it's, it's actually.
0: It's and what day is it? It could be Saturday, it could be Sunday. We wouldn't know. We, you wouldn't have any idea. Well, we're happy to take your 29th hour uh, for this discussion today. And <laughs> no, no, I'm really pleased to be here. So, Cameron, we, we're here to talk about uh, coaches. And mm-hmm. researching and, and learning about you, I'm, I'm absolutely mm-hmm. fascinated to talk to you because you've had 10,000 hours minimum <laughs> experience mm-hmm. with some of the most famous coaches in the game of Australian rules football. Kevin Bartlett, yeah. John Northey, Alan Jeans, Ron Verassi, Neil Baum. Mm. And, of yeah, course, yeah. uh, of course, dinner table conversation with Tom Haafey. Yes. Yeah. So you've had great experience of people that have succeeded and people that have failed. So I, I think I'd like <laughs> to start by asking you, what is it these great coaches do differently? The, the, the interesting thing is I probably
3: had an awareness of the value of coaching before anyone did and I never differentiated between coaching and teaching because I I had teachers at school but coaches around my dinner table as you mentioned and I saw them as different but they weren't really were they you know so so in the case of um, because my father Alan Schwab was secretary of Richmond Richmond with a great club Uh, Tommy Hafey was the great coach coached four premierships at the club and and uh, he would come around to our house regularly or my father would go around to his house or they'd meet at the punt road over Richmond when I was a little boy and I'd always tag along. And I, I remember as a, as a young person, um, it was pre-replays football, or, or, pre or easy access to replays. Uh, my father and Tommy Hayfee would talk about the game the day before and, and I'd be listening, say, as an eight or nine or 10-year-old kid and they'd be talking about a piece of play which happened and i think to myself i, I remember that I, I can recall that and then 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 i was getting the value of them saying okay what was their take on that and and i knew that my father's take was different to what tommy's was because my my father might have been a point of view whereas tommy had a responsibility you know he had to then say okay if that if that piece of play wasn't as it should have been what do i now have to do with that particular player to 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 improve on that performance. And and then, so I, I grew up with that. And then the very first job I had was uh, as an office boy at the Melbourne Football Club and, and the coach was Ron Barassi. And, and Ron Barassi's the icon figure of the game and maybe the biggest name the game's ever produced. And he was, um, he, he'd already been a part of 10 premierships. You know, it's like just extraordinary. Played in six and had coached four. and But he, he's his way was very... Very different to, to Tom's. Um it, he was very into the science of coaching, whilst he was very aggressive and uh, and tough, but he was always looking at taking it to the edge. And in fact, Tommy Hafey loses his job at Richmond at one stage because they say that he can't keep up with, you know, the insight of Brassi, the understanding of Brassi. So I'm getting the the two, two pieces. Um but the interesting thing with my experience with Brassi is that um, Whilst it was an extraordinary personal experience. We didn't have any team success and it was the first time Ron Barassi had not had team success. So, so I saw the great Ron Barassi not, not, not achieve in the way that he had achieved his whole life. And, and then later on in the piece uh, as CEO of Richmond football club, I worked with Alan Jeans and, and I'd say they were three really different people, um, but you could see how if you all put them in the same room at the same time, they would keep each other entertained for, you know, you, you couldn't put a time frame on it um, because they'd bring, be bringing something different. I would say their heart, though, is that the one thing that they did have in common is that they, they were seeking to set a standard at all times and they tried to align, I think, as best they could that standard to the capability of what they had access to in, in terms of the player group. I think all of them probably would have been frustrated at different times when they didn't have the capability that they needed. And I saw that with Brassi at Melbourne, because we just simply didn't have that that capability and probably Alan Jeans at Richmond a little bit, but they'll, they'll, they'll very strong on that. This is the standard. This is the standard we're working towards. If we're not ready there, if we're not there now, we hope to be there in, in a time frame which works for us, you know. Uh, and if you can't, if you can't develop quick enough to work in with that time frame, we're, we're going to be pretty cutthroat about it. And 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 it was a sport in the. um, seventies, eighties, nineties was very, very unforgiving. More more unforgiving than it is now. We we at least try to give the person a parachute. At that stage there was no interest there. We'd just throw them out of the plane, really. Um, and so those who found themselves on the wrong side of that decision making weren't necessarily dealt with, with an enormous amount of empathy and and it was really challenging for those guys.
0: Interesting. You, those three men that you mentioned, I, I don't know any of them, but I do know the reputation of Hafey and jeans as being a father figure to players and, yes. and really yeah. fulfilling that role. How have you seen coaches balance this intimacy and this, uh, with their players and this almost uh, patriarchal approach to them, but at the yeah. same time, stepping back and being dispassionate when it's time to make yeah. tough calls.
3: Well, I think the learnings of leadership as it relates to parenting are really strong. You know, I'd say that as a rule, and, and 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 that balance between you know the the, the pure patriarchal sort of way, and, and I think a lot of it comes back to definition. But but you're right with um, Tommy Hafea was almost the, the people would talk openly about uh, love. You know, they they loved Tommy. You know, it was really deep. You know, and with brass, it would have been this deep respect, you know, and they, and, and so there was, you know, that, and the trust in that, you know, that he was able to get, but it was a little bit different. I think Alan jeans that came a little bit later from what I understand, he coached for a very long time. I'm not sure whether all people he dealt with in, in his early St Kilda days, would have the same view as say the Hawthorn people would later on, and he, he also, you remember, Alan Jeans was a policeman as well, so there was a that 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 really came through in in the way that he would have, I think, coached. During that period of time, and you know, he used to say things like, "You never take the uniform off," you know. So you're you're always, you know, there's always an expectation in and around. If you want to be an AFL player, well, you're never not an AFL player in in, in the way you behave external. But the, the good thing that I'm seeing in 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 most forms of leadership is that. I remember early days and because uh, I was I was I was young into leadership that people said oh you can't form too close relationships with your people and that was it was almost like a warning sign and, and I think it came a little bit out of military training that so because of, you know you had the sort of the World War two then you had the generation after that and then I'm really because I'm into it young I had the generation almost it was before my time and and so most of the leaders who I were in and around were very much, um, control command type leaders, which almost by definition says, "Don't get too close." You know, don't get too close. Um, Where I think we're now, we're we're so far past that. Yes, because you can you can have uh, really close relationships, but as long as you understand that at some point a decision will have to be made as it relates to what next. And I actually had that situation. I, I was CEO of Fremantle Football Club, and Chris Conley was one of my closest friends was coach of Fremantle and before appointing him, we we did have that conversation and and said that there there is a very good chance at some stage I'm going to come to you. It might be in a year's time, two years time, hopefully in 20 years time, but I'm going to have to come to you and say, look, it's all over. It's all, it's all over. And we need to, you know, be able to have that conversation and hopefully we can have that conversation uh, that we, we can maintain a friendship. Uh, as a result of it and unfortunately that has happened that did happen the case and literally I did go to him straight after a game got beaten by North Melbourne in 2007 and I walked into the rooms and I think I think it's I said Chris I think it's time for that conversation I think I think it's over for you and and he looked at me and said right, I think you're right and and so we're able to do it on on that basis so the friendship and whether it's friendship or whether it's of the parenting type thing i think it depends I, I i'd say that one thing that we do is we we have a tendency to generalize relationships you have to be able to develop relationships which are specific to the individual you know because we're all bringing different things in different um, ambitions goals ways behaviors attitudes all these things we all bring a very very different in elite sport there are certain non-negotiables but even then they're a little bit more broader if we actually trust the relationship, you know, we, we were, you know, I, I think that there was this thing you have to treat everyone the same. Well, that, well, that's just nonsense. Since, since when has that worked, you know? But again, I think it came very much out of a military way of thinking of which we're now in, the, we're probably the first generation who've never really had that in, in a direct, you know, respect in our own life. You know, we're, you know, I grew up where there was there was Vietnam in the background, but but really we haven't had it nearly as much, particularly in Australia, as um, as other generations. If you're uh, you went from World War you know, World War One to World War Two, and then you know. So I think we're, the, the benefit of that, and the good thing is you get someone like Jurgen Klopp who really talks about his love of the players and they talk about their love of him and they talk about the sensitivities around relationships and they, they value the relationships on things like empathy and uh, you go, wow, gee, aren't we lucky to be leading or having the opportunity to lead in an environment where that is actually considered important, where, where it wasn't, I
0: think, for a long, long time. These are all great examples of... Coaches stepping forward and even yourself moving forward into that conversation with Chris Connolly. Yeah. Yeah. But when is it important, do you think, for coaches to step back and and be, be less verbose and be quieter and be in the background?
3: I think there is a difference between mentoring and coaching. I know that they're used interchangeably. Um, but mentoring is more about sharing a a way of thinking, an insight, a framework, a model. Even when I, I coach now, I, I build on sort of three framings of it. I say, have, have I got a story to support what I'm going to say? Have I got a metaphor which actually makes sense for that individual? And is there a little model? And the, the model might be just a two by two or a little triangle, but it might, it might be anything. I'd see that as more mentoring because you, you're trying to teach something to someone. Whereas, Whereas coaching is mainly about the space. It's really about asking better questions as, as much as anything. And and so the, but it's not the first question. It's then you, you might have an idea. You might say, this is a really cool question. And then you roll it out and nothing comes, but you then got to go, okay, what's my second or third go at this one? Because you, you, hopefully there is at least something that you've heard back. You go, okay, okay, can we explore that a little bit, a little bit more than more? more well, than what you've given me at this at this point in time, and about the listening. And yes, the listening is very very important, but it's actually not just listening to the person you're you're seeking to coach. It's listening to what is going through your own head at that time. So I think the most important thing is because if you're hearing their words going into your head, that's a really cool thing, but it's actually making sense of what they're actually saying. And if if you're just looking for the opportunity just to say the next thing or talk the next thing or or whatever, that, that's that's the wrong that's the wrong record playing in your head. You know, you, you got to create different. Different spaces, and and um, and I was like, because I grew up in an environment where my father was very good at that. He he would, yeah, and so was my mum. When I think about it, she, whenever I'd come home and I'd say. You know they reckon this or they say that she goes oh who's they let's this work let's have a chat about they let's let's i want to know exactly who is they who is they you know and i remember at one stage she said um, it was during puberty of which your friendship is your friendship group is everything even though you know they're quite not you, know, you look back on it now but gee they mean everything to you and i remember Mum said if they if they said we're all jumping off a cliff would you do it and i'm thinking. Probably, because <laughs> because they are everything really at that point, you know. And then you go, well, that's just silly, really. But but it is still who it is. So right from the start, my and my dad, I, I I now describe him as a skilled interrupter, of which I never described him at that as the time. I must admit, it was a bit pain in the ass, really. But he'd always go, no, and then let's let's think more about that. And and mum was always onto that. So I had these two influences around me very much about just don't tell me the obvious stuff. I, I, want, I want I want to know more about what's going on here want to know what's going on and that probably served me quite well even though uh, i've got to say there's lots of periods of time where my arrogance and my ego and all that sort of stuff you know that blinded everything you know, And there's no question about that um but to come back i think so that the, i often even if i'm in a coaching relationship i say okay let's talk today am i mentoring my coaching here and i've explained the difference at the start of the relationship um, and someone might say look you know no, I, I really I've got this really big issue I'm trying to deal with I've got this person who's just not performing I reckon they're undermining me in their own way how do I deal with that issue they're, they've been I know that they're you know that they what the fact that I'm letting them get away with it is really hurting my relationship with other people or that okay, well that's a complex issue that, that, that's a coaching issue now Uh, There might be a framework I can help them with eventually, but I've got to learn more about the problem, you know. And so mentoring and coaching, whilst they're used very much interchangeably, I'd make a point of actually trying to say, well, which mode am I in here now? Which mode am I in? And And that's been quite helpful.
0: Cameron, I've heard you talk about the first lesson you learnt being that your leadership has to be an extension of all parts of you. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you learnt this and where you've applied it to the teams that you've been involved with? Um,
3: and it goes back a little bit to, to what I spoke about. Because I was a, a young CEO, uh, I had um, – I looked around me and my – and, and look, as crazy as it sounds, this is this is day one for me. I was 24. I'm CEO of Richmond. I'm sitting at the desk, which – like. Ten years earlier, I used to visit my dad on school holidays. I'm sitting there, and I felt almost embarrassed to be sitting on that side of the desk. I felt that I should be sitting still on that one, you know, drawing pictures of horses or something like that, which I used to do. with footballers, when I was I used to go in there and and hoping, hoping my buggery that Royce Hart would walk past the door, of the childhood hero. And if it was anyone other than Royce Hart, I'd be a tad disappointed. You know, it was just that. And then all of a sudden, I'm in the job. You know, I'm doing the job, and I'm thinking, I have no idea what to do here none. I don't know who to ring. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know. I had no idea. So my first obvious thing is I, I sort of was a little bit, what would so-and-so do now? You know, what would this person do now? That was my way of thinking. And and I actually built some momentum based on the fact that, you know, what would Graham Richmond, the famous Richmond you know, CEO do at this time? Well, he was a very aggressive person. He was a very ruthless person. And I was probably a lot of things, but I, I, I would never have ever, Gone close to his level of that, so I felt that that's what you had to be to be one of those things. You had to be, and Richmond was known as ruthless Richmond as well. That was the number one value almost. We just managed to ruthless our way to the bottom of the ladder, but that was that was a different discussion probably. And so I thought that's how I had to be. Well, I'm, I'm not like that, you know. I reckon I'm, I'm hopefully, and I was so. Um, I reckon I was only about three years into puberty at the time, and I, and I was so concerned about the fact that people would see me as soft and weak and all that sort of stuff. But I just overemphasized to make a point. And I just about exhausted myself and I just about stuffed up every basis of any decent relationship I could possibly have. And then I just had, there, there was a wonderful mentor I had early in, in, and he, look, he was a childhood hero as well. And it was got my name of Francis Burke. He played play for Richmond, superstar player, great player, but he was, he was a bloke who had probably, um, yeah, he got the very best out of himself and he's an iconic figure at Richmond. So I'm again, I'm blessed. And I remember he just used to say, Cameron, just be yourself. Because, and we'd have these conversations and he'd say, I, I don't see uh, what, how you're talking now is not what I see when you're in other environments. What, why is that? You know? And, and I thought, well, I'm not Francis Burke. So you can just walk in and be Francis Burke anyone you like, and everyone just get. No, he goes, yeah, but you can be. I remember saying that. He said, I said, you can walk in, everyone, Everyone knows who you are, and you go, you reckon it was always that way for him? Of course it wasn't. He was the 19 year old, twenty year old trying to work himself out as well. But him saying that gave me then the confidence to say, well, yeah, I, I can be all right. That I, I, I enjoy, you know, the the creativity of leadership i I enjoyed the person the personal relationships that had the prospect i enjoyed almost the um and i worked out you only sort of have two levers anyway sort of your talent lever and your systems lever. well i I like talent and systems they're two things i really enjoy about leadership so i just focused on the stuff that i was good at and and then worked out that it might be good that i actually employ a few people who are going to pick up the stuff that I'm not very good at and people who can really build relationships and trust and give them then the opportunity to, to sit on the other side of the desk whenever they, they think it's appropriate to give them to bring me back to where I need to be, you know, and and that worked out much better, much, much better. And the other thing was it didn't exhaust me because trying to be someone else is a really exhausting you'd be sitting in the car and you'd have to almost put yourself in match day mode. Like every, every morning you walk, you know, you walk into the footy club. Well, that's just exhausting. And, And leadership is tiring enough without actually adding another layer of just pure exhaustion to it all, you know? So, uh, and then I probably had, I was lucky I was given more opportunities and I got to do it for a long period of time. And, and every time, Um, I was faced into situations where I I then had the benefit of the last time I'd been in that experience. All those things all played their role,
0: no doubt. Cameron, listening to you, I'm reminded of, the imposter syndrome which is very prevalent yeah. in corporate life i feel like that as we're sitting here today <laughs> so that's
3: actually, well, is it okay I might let yeah. say that now or you got me here for a reason but i'm sort of sort of trying to work out what the reason is you know so
0: yeah. I, I mean my my uh, reaction to, to to meeting you and hearing your story is that that the, you shouldn't feel that way at all i think you've got great insights yeah. and a very rich history that is applicable to many many people but let's talk about the imposter syndrome a little bit and how yeah. You've seen the great coaches around you deal with self-doubt yeah. and in turn yeah. how that's helped you deal with self-doubt. Yeah,
3: well, I've got – so it comes from the, the basis of – and th- and this was an insight which took a while to emerge, but I always wondered why I continued to feel like an insight, ins- an imposter in something that I'd actually done for 20, 20 years. Why, why 20 years down the track you shouldn't feel like a, an imposter? But I did. And I think it was because, firstly, um, leadership at, at a most fundamental level is difficult. It's hard. So, so you're doing something which is just hard. A lot of things can go wrong. And and football clubs are really complex beasts. But I think most businesses, it's the layers of. And I, I call them, you know. I have these in the work I do now. I talk about the trust enemies, and one of the trust enemies I call is complicatedness. You know that we, you know, it's different to complexity. It's complex where we make it more complicated than it should be. And I like using. We need to have an anti-complicatedness strategy here. You know, so because it's like about twenty-seven syllables. You know, so so you know it's a, and and, and often we're adding to that. we we're, we're, we're the person adding the layers to it all. And so therefore, by definition, if something is hard, you're always going to feel that you're going to ask yourself, am I up for this? You you are are going to ask that. But if you are doing a good job as a leader, the main focus you should have is what I would call the the 49-51 decisions, the 49%, 51% decisions. Because that means you've got a whole lot of sixty forties around you covering off all the stuff that they need to cover off. Who've then got their own version of a sixty forty with them and all that. So therefore, but the only decisions which should come to you by definition, uh, as in to make a decision, not to sign off on a decision, but to make a call uh, are the most um, complicated, are the most complex, are the most, you know, the ones where you just go, you know, and I remember different times you'd be facing into situations you go, and I've been around the game a long time, but it's ability to throw up totally unique scenarios for you to deal with and then people to look to you as, you say, as though you're some sort of an expert on this thing that no one's ever seen before in their entire life. That's actually part of the deal. And so if you're actually doing your job well, you should only be dealing with the most ambiguous decisions. But the problem with amb- ambiguous decisions is you're going to get them wrong often. So, therefore, you're going to feel like, so it's one, it's hard, and you're going to stuff it up a lot. <laughs> so, you're going to get it wrong a lot. And the one thing about footy clubs is that it's pretty unforgiving when you stuff it up because we have a scoreboard. Have you seen the size of the MCG scoreboard? It's like about a million feet big, you know. So, so you're walking off the ground with the score saying, we, we kicked 62, but the problem was they kicked 171, you know. <laughs> so, that's, that's a pretty unforgiving little piece of information up for everyone to see. And also a million people have watched it on the telly. And the Murphy's law of footy is that when that happens, it's most likely on a Friday night because that's the biggest audience. So that's, they're really, they're much better when they happen when no one's watching, but they generally happen at that time. So it's going to be hard. And so therefore you're going to feel like an imposter. The other thing is we have a tendency to, um, as leaders is that we we see a bigger picture because we've got, we're higher up a, like we've got a different view, if you like. And so, therefore, when we achieve something, we're almost past the achievement and moving on to the next thing and not necessarily getting the pure joy from the achievement. And one of the phases I talk about in sport is called a game never won. Even if you win, you still got to play next week. you know, you still got to – even if you win the premiership, trade week, like the trade week, you're trading at players, starts one week later, one week later. So we used to win the premiership and we'd, we'd start, we'd stop celebrating. We'd win the premiership in September and stop celebrating in March. Well, you stop celebrating now. If you win it on the 27th of September, you stop celebrating on the 2nd of October because that's when Trade Week starts. So, and the demands of leadership, all that sort of stuff. So I think, you, so what you have to be good at is dealing with being an imposter. So, so why what, what, what do you feel, what, what is it? Yeah, you know, what, what, what do you need to be good at to understand that that's the, the reality of it all? You know, that's, that's the thing. So even the work I do now, it just builds on in framing of it all. So you just, okay, I just always had one key question. I'd always come back to is, okay, in this moment right now at this time, what does this role expect of me? What does it expect of me now? Because that was different to what it expected of me six weeks ago. And if we're having this conversation in the future, it will expect something else differently of me, you know, then. Yeah, and the classic one is the, you know, the, the COVID, you know, the, the, the role and expectations of leaders totally changed. And, and I would think most, because I'm doing a lot of work with organisations, and, and most of them are saying we're getting the best employment engagement surveys we've ever had in our lives because their leaders have been front and centre in trying to sort this stuff out and give people some sort of meaning in and around, you know, at a time when we're really struggling to find.
0: Hi everyone, I'm here with Professor Eric Knight, the Executive Dean of the Macquarie Business School, and he's just stepped out of the classroom. Eric, how do the programs offered by the school help prepare people for the future? Well, Part of it is about preparing students to think about the outside world and seeing the changes and how that looks different. But it's also about people's inside world and how they draw from their inner purpose and motivation to be able to build careers that are meaningful for them over a very long time. Thanks, Eric. The master's program's at the Macquarie Business School. Designed to empower you, challenge you, and transform the
1: way you think. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
0: I'd like to talk about values if I can. You talked a yeah. minute ago about Ruthless Richmond of the 70s. Yeah. And,
3: yeah.
0: you know, recently... It would I, it now, would it? How no. would Ruthless go? <laughs> well, Damien Hartwick, it's almost like Humble Richmond. I, you know, you see humble them laughing. And, yeah. It's
3: the greatest transition in the history of modern sport, you know, from an Australian point of view. The, the club which prided itself on its ruthlessness now prides itself on its humility. And I know what's a better club. I know which one I'd like to play for or be involved with or support. Well, I heard Stephen. I had, some, I had someone recently say, Richmond now for me, whilst I sort of half played along with that ruthless thing, the Richmond I barrack for, and this is a person in his 50s, now because they're, they're leaders in their own right, I can actually hold out to my to my people are saying this is this is the sort of organisation we want to be a part of. Or I haven't been able to do that for the previous however many years of their life. So that's, that's really powerful really
0: powerful. I heard, I mean, talking about powerful, I heard Stephen Kerr, you know, he's been in the news because of the Jordan documentary yeah. lately, but I heard him yeah. talking about the value of joy and, and joy, that thing. Yeah, it, it's amazing. And so I'd like to yeah. ask you what what are the best and worst values you've seen coaches develop through your 20 plus years <laughs> in football?
3: Well, I, th- I think we've probably described it in some ways. I, I think where it's, where, where it's so outcome focused that it loses track of what what it actually is. And, and these are always really interesting. Look, I'm, I'm I understand that there is an, a need for, you know, bigger organisations to say, okay, these are the things which are important. These are the things. But by definition, where we're saying, okay, well, these things are important. I'm much more interested in, in the behaviours which align to those things. So so we, we might say, look, like, if, if, if I looked at organizations value statement, like, across the world, I would say if we said the word integrity, I reckon it would be in, like, 85% of them, okay? But then you say, okay, let's have a chat about integrity. Well, um, some people, integrity is not pinching money, you know? Uh, some people, integrity might be integrity of effort, trying hard. So, I put a little definition on, say, so okay, I think integrity is is doing the right thing even when it's hard. So, I think integrity is easy when it's easy. Okay? So, so if you go back to all the values again and say, okay, tell me how we go when it's hard on those things. And a classic example would, would have been in recent times where organisations are saying, okay, well, our profit model has just gone. You know, down the toilet. What, what, what are we now doing? This this is the test of our values. You know, people are everything. They'd say our power is our people. Well, They've just actually just they just emptied three quarters of them out of the joint. You know, because they you know, because and I get why that can actually happen. So I'm not I'm not judging them. So I'm, I'm not as much into values as a a statement around stuff. I'm really interested though in behaviours. Okay, how, how do we behave here? And, and sport is a performance industry. No, no um, one even pretends that it's actually not, but it's also, as you know, it is so critical in terms of how people align their, their identity to this thing. It's how, you know, even the, the conversation where, and the funny thing was I, 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 I grew up a Richmond supporter. I worked at Melbourne. I worked at Richmond. I worked at Fremantle. And people say, oh, who are you, for? Well, well I, I, I I just came back to my identity. My, I'm a Richmond person, you know. But I couldn't have been any. I worked at Melbourne 50. I couldn't have been any more Melbourne at the time, you know. And Barassi, the figure that we were talking about before, he's a life member of four AFL clubs, you know. But he considers himself now. He says, I'm a Melbourne person. But I reckon when he goes to the the Carlton premiership reunions, geez, Carlton on that day, you know, that's just how it is. And and no one would say that he's not being, um, not showing integrity in that, you know, so it's how people behave. So, so people will then often in conversations I have with people say, oh, you come from elite sport, let's have a conversation about a high performance culture. And I, and I often say, well, we don't actually talk much about that. We we talk about high performance behaviours, and it's high performance behaviours as it relates to the individual. So how do we get that person performing at a high, at, at a high performance level? And that is a different thing for each individual. So if we just threw out accountability and integrity and you know, all these sorts of words which get thrown around in regard to that, and we had a really deep, deep uh, com, uh, a deeper conversation, not the obvious conversation, but the deeper, 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 having tested those values, I reckon we'd all have three different takes on them. So it's the conversations around those and it's the accountability teams actually have to each other as it relates to those which are important. And so I, I find that at, a, at an organisational level, they're pretty good at articulating values. You know, they, they get that and they understand that. And, and hopefully it also has a strategic value for the minute that there's no point having a, a value which isn't going to help them strategically do the things that they want to achieve. And I'd say most people... When they, they look at that, they go, yeah, they're the values. Now, what are my behaviours as it relates to that? And you can have some really good conversations in regards to that. And individuals can, can pretty much say, well, this is my take on those things. The trick is most of us operate in teams. And most senior people in businesses, they're part of about four or five different teams. And the team that they're, the most important team they're a part of, maybe say a senior leadership team, which is a group of people with nothing in common who don't spend much time together. And that's where the values are tested. That's where the values are tested because someone says, uh, this is a time when we should be taking risks. And someone says, hang on, mate, this is a time we should be putting money in the bank, you know, and it turns on what job you got. I need 15 more people to sell stuff because you know, this is a great chance And someone says, okay, who's going to pay for it? You know, you have these, you're coming from your own world and you're almost representative of your part of the business by the time. You, it's almost like a jockey. where really, this is a group of people who should be there the, That's where the values are tested and I'd say the same around board tables as well because I reckon most of the time you say to the board, okay, tell me those values again, but that's where it's tested because they're the groups who are making the, the, the most important decisions based on the least amount of information and knowledge. Often that's where it's tested. So I reckon, but I reckon that's also the area we do the least amount of work on making sure that we live the values. So let's
0: talk about your work then. You're being quiet here,
3: Paul. Is that your experience or not? Is it?
0: I am lucky enough to be part of a European management board um, and I would say we, uh, I'm lucky enough to work in the beer industry and we spend a lot of time outside of the boardroom together. Yeah. And we are in a social it's setting. Very underrated
3: by the way, because a lot of groups don't.
0: And we would talk about our families, uh, our fears. Uh, we would share with each other. I think in the way that you only can when you're in a very comfortable uh, setting uh, like that. Yeah. So, so yeah. listening to you, we, we have a set of behaviors yeah. that are, yeah. that are very, very strong. Um, and we had uh, we launched them a few a uh, few years ago now, and we talk about them a lot. We recognise them in yeah. others, and so when I hear you talk about behaviours being more important than than culture, I can definitely that definitely connects with me, and I
3: see that yeah. in my experience. That's great. And so what would have then happen is your your culture you then create is unique to you guys and, and therefore because it's unique to you guys, you can actually fulfil it. You're not trying to be something that you're not. And so then we say, okay, if some of the habits within the group aren't where they need to be, we can then have the conversations about these behaviours need to change. And that's where team, team is, elite sporting teams are great at this. They're great at the what happened question as in what happened and what do we learn and how do we now bring that into our, into our thing. So something, if, if you're, if someone says, okay, that behaviour is outside of, uh, how, what do we have to do to change that behavior and you might have the debate whether it is or isn't outside but once that's had and I've got three rules on that is can you back it up is it important what you're saying is is coming from a good place and if it ticks off those three things well you should be getting that feedback and then you say okay well, what do you have to do to change it well there's something which is that normally is something for you personally you have to there'll be a habit there'll be a routine there'll be a rhythm uh, if you want to get fit, it's the consistency of the effort to get fit, not the decision to get fit. It's and then and it's the identity: do you see yourself as a health and healthy and fit person? And that's that's where um, I think mainly business can learn from sport is that we're the total focus on behaviours and what we actually have to do to change behaviours. And so I had a conversation yesterday with Neil Craig, uh, who who coached Adelaide Football Club um came in at melbourne he's done high performance roles now for about the last 10 years and he's a high performance manager with eddie jones in um in england in england rugby now and he says all their conversations are about the people say we need to get this behavior right and straight away they go into that mode well how do we change that person's behavior Um, and then we give them the chance to do it and if it doesn't change and it's still impacting on team performance well the choice is made to replace them um, and it's pretty unforgiving from that point of view because it is called elite sport for a reason but you're operating in an elite business environment and there's certain expectations which then obviously come come with it and you won't necessarily work towards those expectations until you actually really understand what those ex- what those expectations are and until you build clarity around those expectations and therefore can change your behaviours
2: accordingly.
0: And there's a there's an element of, of trust I think that, Mm. That is, has to be in place for people to call out these behaviors. And I want to talk about trust actually, because you're, you're running design CEO, which is, which is your company and you teach performance trust, which I find to be a fascinating idea. Could you just talk a little bit about the role of trust, how people can, how you've seen coaches develop it with their teams and just add some color to that for us.
3: Well, well the interesting thing is often you, you, you whenever I'm so I was having a conversation with you I'd say well how important is trust and and most people would say look it's really important and, and then you, you, you'd throw okay and, and it might be their definition of trust we have to you know consolidate what we mean by trust but then I'd say is there anything more important than trust and and we can say, I'd say, well, I need to be able to trust, if I'm working with you, I need to trust you at two levels. I, I need to trust your your character. You know, are you a good person? And, and, I, and I, I reckon it's a little bit of uh, sort of integrity intent, you know, comes into that. And there might be a bit of vagueness around that, um, you know, attitude, aptitude, maybe, you know, as in, you know, do you bring a good effort? Are you prepared to learn? You know, you'll have different takes on, on character. But I have to be able to trust your competency as well. Like, you have to be able to do the job, you know. I trust my wife absolutely, but she, she's not performing brain surgery on me. You know, it's, it's outside of the, the realm. So there's a character competency there. And then we say, okay, well, that's, that's the personal trust that we need. And then we we'll say, okay, let's talk about then the systems trust, do we trust the systems? Are the systems that we've put in place incentivising the behaviours that we actually want from our people? And the, a banking royal commission in Australia would probably say that they haven't. They haven't done that. So this, it breakdown down at a system level which then probably comes into play. It's very complex and all that stuff. I get that. But the systems rewarded behaviours of which everyone would say, well, how, how, how'd that happen, you know? And then you have the, the strategic trust. Do we trust the plan? Like in the most general sense, do we trust the plan? Well, firstly, do we actually know the plan? The people working in our organization, are they, do they find the plan understandable enough? So it can at least be compelling to in fact, we can take action against them. And it, and again, the similar thing, if I threw the values out to a board meeting tomorrow and I said, okay, what what's the strategic plan of this business? What, what are the two or three critical things that we're trying to do? Well, again, most of them might really strike. So if they can't do it really easy, I, I think strategy just really needs to cover off on two things. First of all, people get what it is It's and, it, and it's in its own way. It's compelling. Like they're a bit excited by it because we get excited by our achievements in the moment or the very real chance of achieving in the not so distant future. You know, and then there's the cultural trust here. Do, do we trust what's going on when no one's looking, you know, that, that's something. So, and then people say, well, yeah, I can – and that's I've defined it that way. So people go, oh, based on your definition, they'd say, I'd struggle to find something more important than trust, based on that type of stuff. And then I go, okay, where does trust sit in the strategy now? Like, for, have we got an objective to be good at trust? Because I think the stuff that we're talking about here in the conversations we're having are, in fact, things where you can proactively become and build better trust. And I look at trust as an outcome. The same way as I look at authenticity with leadership as an outcome because you, if people say, I'm going to be a really authentic leader. I say, how's that vulnerability stuff going for you? Oh, no, not big on that. Okay. Well, how's your authenticity? <laughs> like it's, you can't have one without the other. If you know the behavior is one of being vulnerable, if you like, which will help create them the authenticity. You know? So therefore I say, okay, what are the things which contribute to, to trust? And, you know, and it really comes under those four things. Do we trust the, trust the person, trust the plan, trust the systems, trust the culture, you know, but having a really proactive. And what I find is it's not necessarily um, based on uh, anyone doing anything majorly different. It's, it's asking the right questions of all of those things. But like from a strategic point of view, I, I just simply ask, okay, what does winning look like? Are we, are we clear on ambition here? And then say, okay, what do we need to be good at? What capability are we seeking to build so we can give ourselves a chance of actually doing that? And can we get ambition and capability somehow aligned? Because if ambition's up here and capability's here, we've over-promised, well, we've just stuffed trust up. Now, trust is gone because all our people are out there selling stuff that they can't deliver on. And looking through, through a company recently, and they said oh, they're going to have it for me in June. I'm still waiting. <laughs> so, yeah, and you get, so the, the trust has broken a little bit now, you know, in its own way. And there might be lots of, I'm sure there's lots of good reasons for it, but can you tell me what the reasons are? So at least I'm not sitting here waiting for the dog to bark at the Amazon man out the front, you know. So it's, it's this type of thing. And then you go, okay, then ambition and capability align it because then we get clarity around, uh, we get clarity around expectations and expectations are important. And then we have to ask ourselves, what are we actually going to do here? Because we can't do everything. And that's where the next important part of strategy is. Strategy is about the best use of scarce resources. And there's always going to be trade-offs. And that's those really difficult decisions around senior leadership team. I need this, they need that. If if we actually, the first go of the budget every year, it's like we're going to lose billions of dollars because everyone's just put their wish list in, you know. And then the final question is, how will we know, which is measurement. And measurement, the, the danger with most organisations is they measure that big scoreboard at the MCG. They don't measure the behaviours. So I just simply ask the question, if we were sitting, say three of us actually said, okay, we're forming a business and uh, we, we're calling it the uh, Barnett and Associates because you're the big hitter in the room. <laughs> um, we're calling it, uh, and we're going to have, um, you know, we, we're going to, uh, and we're sitting around here and it's done what we wanted to do. If we're sitting here in three years' time, we just ask ourselves, and it's gone well, you know, what, tell us what conversations we're having if it's gone well. We're talking about, we're talking, we'll are talking about—we're probably be talking about the wonderful people we've got around the place. We'll be talking about, gee, we really worked hard through that period. Gee, got hit and miss there. You know, we almost went under at that stage, but we really dragged ourselves. They'd be the conversations we'd be having. We won't be talking about how much money we've got in the bank. We won't be talking about. So these are the things that I think – and so I'd, I'd say just run those lens, that lens, those four questions over the organisational strategy. Run it over even at a team-based level. So if you're in a senior lead, what does winning look like for this team? How will we know this team is a good team? Um, and then you find there's a few things we're going to change. And so that, I, I, don't, and that, and I think if you've got pretty good understanding of expectations, against those four questions or you're, you're a good chance of having trust. We, we trust the plan. We trust our capability of delivering on the plan. We trust our capability when things, things go wrong that we can actually make the right choices and trade-offs at that time. We can be nimble. We can do all those sorts of things.
0: Yeah. I, I hear a lot of coaches and a lot of leaders talk about legacy and yeah. being something that they are aware of and something that they want to focus yeah. on. Can you tell me yeah. what is the legacy that you believe the great coaches leave behind? Um,
3: there's a beautiful uh, definition of legacy from the book Legacy, uh, which is if you're looking for a great sporting book, um, as it really relates to, to business, the book Legacy, which really uses the All Blacks as the example, of some of the things that we've, we've talked about And they've got a notion of um, Be a good ancestor Which is, and by definitely saying You know, it's um, leave um, in, in their case they leave the, you know, and that's the All Blacks That's the All Blacks, it's beautiful Sporting Brand, if you want to call it that, you know But it's much more than that uh, leave, leave the Guernsey in better shape is sort of the, the notion, but then they say, but it's, it's plant trees of which we will never enjoy its shade or fruit. That's so it's actually having enough humility to say, I mightn't be the people, I mightn't be the person to finish this off that I might be sitting in the stands when we win the premiership. And you might get a few texts from a few mates saying, Oh, well done on that. But you just go home. You're not in the aftermatch function. Yeah. You know, you're not drinking champagne out of the cup.
0: And if I could ask, what's the legacy that you want to leave as a leader and a coach?
3: Have I taught self responsibility? If you like, it's a really fairly vague answer, but I'd say the same thing with my kids. So have I got them to the point where they can deal with the stuff they're going to have to deal with themselves? And 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 I've got I've got a transgender daughter. So 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 part of her legacy, uh, her, my legacy for her is, is giving her the confidence to define herself in the way that in a gender other than the one she was born. You know, so like so it it's knowing that that's a formal, yeah. When when she first told me or, or talked. To me about that was i'm thinking oh gee life's going to be harder for you Yeah, you know the, the first thought was just it's going to be so much harder for you but but that, that was me being selfish you know really because it was that it was already it was way too hard <laughs> already and now it's actually much easier because she gets to be who she wants to be and and sort of stuff anyone who doesn't like it anyway you know so that's and that's the power of it so you 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 actually with coaching it it's not actually saying you do this and you'll do well it's actually them working it out for themselves and we come back and say, oh, i did this I, go, oh, I never saw that coming that's a bit different you know and forging their own way and actually yeah and and the the, the the brassy story which you've heard me tell is this notion of an unknown meaning for an unknown person is you actually if you're helping someone in some find some little piece of meaning and they take it somewhere else and it becomes like a, it it forms its own way forward. And so as a coach, all I'm saying is uh, I'm hoping I can help people work it out for themselves in a way, which is unique to them in their own way. They won't want for advice because I do chat. <laughs>
1: so.
0: Cameron Schwab, I'd like to thank you for a fantastic discussion. Uh, we greatly appreciate your time today. It's been hugely insightful and uh, good luck with the remaining lockdown in Melbourne.
3: Uh, well, thanks very much. I look forward to, to learning from the other people you've had on board as well.
2: The Great Coaches Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our first in-focus edition of The Great Coaches podcast. We will look to bring different perspectives on coaches and coaching like Cameron's in the near future. Coming up next on The Great Coaches Podcast, we speak with Paul Gustard. Paul is head coach at Harlequins Rugby Club in the UK. He played more than 150 rugby premiership games for Leicester Tigers, London Irish and Saracens. His coaching career started at his old club Saracens, helping them win the premiership on three occasions. And in 2016, they picked up the European Championship. In 2015, Paul was appointed the England rugby team's defence coach
3: as a coach, I think the one thing that, I, that I'm getting better and better at and something that I stay true to is um, to be creative and innovative, so, so to keep trying to stretch and stimulate and, and inspire, that'd be one side of it,
2: and then the other thing is, which goes hand in hand with creativity and inspiration and motivation is uh, insistence and consistency. And just before we go, if you have any feedback on any of our Great Coaches episodes or you know a great coach who has a unique story to share, we'd love to hear from you. You'll find our contact details in the show notes.